What do you really know about keeping yourself secure online? We've all had to deal with being much more online over the past year, and that's something that's, while useful to us, does put us at risk of cyber attacks and other threats to our privacy. So how do we stay safe online and what do we actually really know about it? I'm Danny Palmer, this is ZDNet Security Update, and with me to discuss how to keep your privacy safe online is Troy Hunt, Digital Security Advisor at NordVPN. Thanks for joining me, Troy. So, first of all, I mean, what has changed over the last year in terms of how people react and know about keeping themselves safe online? Well, obviously, the main thing that's changed over the last year is everyone has been forced online to do a whole bunch of things that they might not have done otherwise. I mean, I was just thinking about, it, as you said, that even for me, there's a lot of things I've bought online in the last year that I wouldn't have bought before, not, not always successfully, but I haven't really had a choice. And uh, I think what's interesting is as people have been thrust online, uh, effectively under duress, a lot of the, the flaws in the way we manage our digital privacy have, have come more to the surface. And, and inevitably what we're seeing now is just more manifestations of, of things that we've kind of always done badly, but now we're just like doing badly at greater volumes. So what are some of those digital flaws? Uh, you mentioned there about you know, buying things online. I know that you know, usually in the before times, I suppose you'd call it, you'd, you know, I'd buy things from you know, a few trusted vendors. Nowadays, sometimes it, it feels as if it's harder to get stuff from places where you know you trust. So sometimes you find yourself looking at Oh, this you know, smaller vendor may not heard about. Where you sometimes will find that, you know, this this one wants my card details rather than wanting to use something like PayPal or anything like that. And it's just little things which have slightly changed how we all operate online. Well, I mean, I've I've found for myself uh, some of the things that I've bought online over the last year that I would not have bought in the in previous times have been things like furniture. Uh, now, I have had very mixed success <laughs> buying furniture online in the same way as I've had very mixed success buying clothes online. Uh, my my fiancé seems to be very good at doing that for her, and that's fantastic. But I've ended up going to a whole bunch of places that I never would have visited before online and then having to, to sort of make that decision, right? Like, what do I trust them with? Do I want to give them my credit card? Are they going to process it? Or is it going to go to Stripe? Or do I give them a PayPal? Or, you know, like, what are the... What are the payment constructs that I have to try and protect my privacy online? And look, it's, it's hard for all of us. It's hard for me. And I get to think about this every day. So what's it going to be like for most people? That's one of the key things here. Now, you're someone who knows a lot about this sort of thing. And if even if someone like yourself is you know, having thoughts about you know, how do I stay safe online? What does the, the, you know, your average man in the street or I suppose in their living room uh, have to think about this when staying safe online? Because... Um, as uh, this this uh, recent survey shows, people might not know what they think they know about staying safe online. Look, I mean, this is something we, we see time and time again, right? Like every time we do surveys of people, we see that there's just fundamental misunderstandings about privacy and security uh, online. But I, I think maybe two ways to look at this is that, that number one, like bad incidents are going to happen to all of us. So I am personally in... I think 25 data breaches and have I been pwned? So these are just the ones I know of. <laughs> like there's probably a whole bunch of others I don't even know about. Uh, now I can't stop that from happening. So that's, that's kind of the first thing. But the, the second thing is, is that I can mitigate the risk. So when we come to things like privacy, I mitigate the risk by trying to only share as much information as what I need to. Uh, when that website says, hey, why don't you leave your date of birth so that we can send you a birthday email? It's like, ah, oh, probably don't need more email. Like let's, let's not put that in. 
uh, or it's going to be the 1st of January, <laughs> you know, like one of these things. So we're all going to be subject to uh, online incidents that impact our security and privacy, but we can take steps to mitigate the impact when that happens. It's one of those things where people are very keen to put information about themselves online. Uh, for example, you know, when Facebook started ooh, 15, 16 years ago now, people were sharing a lot of their personal information on there, you know, uh, you know, names, date of birth, hobbies, um, political views, uh, you know, marital status. And all this information is out there for a lot of people. And in some cases, they may not realize that this information is set to public because, of course, there's all the privacy measures you can set on Facebook. But I still see a lot of people I know, you see them posting their, you know, their, their posts, and you can see that it's set to public rather than friends only. And I'm, I'm left thinking, do they know that it is this is set to public? And it's one of those things. There, and I think, well, is it my business to tell them or not? And it's just one of those things where so much of our lives are online now, as you say, that there's so much we have to think about when it comes to privacy. I think the thing that we need to recognize there is that, that privacy is something that is different for each and every person. Uh, I've had, uh, between you and me in the audience, I've had an interesting case in recent weeks where, where someone has been trying to dox me. You know, they're going to release all this information to identify who I am and who my family is and where I live and everything. And they've gone and they've grabbed all of these photos and there's me and there's my kids and there's my fiance. And you sort of look at me and go, oh, gee, that looks bad. I've published all this publicly, <laughs> consciously. So my personal privacy position has been that there's a bunch of information I am willing to publish publicly and share with other people. Now, there are other people who do not want anything of their children online at all until fragments like they're 13 and they're of that sort of copper age in, in the US or maybe until they're old enough just to make the decision for themselves. And, and that's fine. And I don't really have a problem with either position or everything in between. I think where the trick is, is what happens when your position might be much more privacy orientated, but you don't have the right settings or the right practices in order to actually achieve that posture. I think it's the gap that's the really interesting bit. So if the person trying to dox me, they don't understand that there's no gap. <laughs> you know, like this is exactly what I want to share. It's that gap, which is uh, one of the major things here where, I suppose it's become even more the case in the last year where you know, most people I've been uh, socialising with or communicating with have been like this via webcams and that sort of thing. And obviously we're in a sort of securely uh, uh, protected room here. But then we saw you know, when, when the first lockdowns first started, uh, schools and you know, lectures and meetings were going online in, uh, like this without passwords and some things. And inevitably uh some people took advantage of this to do um let's, let's say not 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 things that you'd like to see in a in 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 these sorts of meetings yeah that, look let's be honest that was zoom bombing and some of it don't get me wrong some of it was amusing but the, like the bigger picture here is the fact that random strangers could come and drop in the meetings and I, I think the interesting thing is here like when we're looking back and we're going okay well what has been the impact on privacy over the last year there's obviously been very conscious actions like that where people have tried to be disruptive but I know watching my own kids we had a period there where we had to, to homeschool as well and I was watching my son who he, he would have been 10 years old at the time uh, and he's in his room and he's on his laptop and of course everything's gone online on teams and I was actually pretty impressed because all the kids were there dialing in. And then there's this one kid whose dad's walking around in the background on the phone, like having a business meeting, talking about the deal and the numbers and everything. 
And you're sort of going, isn't this interesting where this guy is not used to having like a live webcam in his lounge room where his son is now sitting having a meeting with his school friends. And then who knows which other parents like me are wandering around in the background and then listen to those conversations. So I think it's all the inadvertent outcomes from the changes in that privacy posture as well, which I find particularly interesting. It is a really interesting point because uh, in many places, especially with the corporate environments, you'd be in a, a secured you know, room, probably in an office. No, no one would be able to listen in uh, because they'd have to physically be there in order to do so. But now so many people are doing uh, their enterprise uh, uh, jobs and are dealing with you know, sensitive information, sensitive info, uh, numbers, and may not be taking that uh, into account when it comes to how their privacy model is operating at home. Because as we know, for a lot of people, the last year has been the first time they've experienced working from home. You know, and it's been a sudden change. And their privacy models may not have quite uh, adapted yet. Yeah, and it's, again, we sort of come back to this point of th this happened under duress, right? Like we didn't get time to plan this. And I feel really sympathetic for all the organisations who maybe they were a little bit behind the eight ball in terms of the modern thinking about work-life balance and virtual offices and all the rest of it. But then they had this event happen and it's like we, we now like it just in order to remain sustainable and to keep our people employed and to keep profitable, we now have to suddenly adapt to something that we never had time to plan. And had we done this in a normal circumstances, it would have taken many months, if not years, to get to the position that we had to achieve in, in, in some cases, like four, six, eight weeks, you know, like just about no time at all. And that has inevitably led to a bunch of the issues that we've seen, such as the Zoom bombing situation, because people didn't have the opportunity to learn how to use the tools and be trained properly before the whole thing hit. So the natural uh, next question here is what can people do to make sure that they are uh, staying safe uh, online, both you know, in their you know, personal lives and, and their professional lives? So basically all the stuff that we've been saying for years and years and years, <laughs> you should do. So particularly when we talk about it in a, in a, a, a COVID era, when people are spending even more time online, um, really, really practical things, being selective about how much information you want to share. Like I love that old premise of you cannot lose what you do not have. If I don't give my date of birth to this website, they're never going to leak it. Yes, they might leak my email address, but that's kind of quasi-public insofar as the only way I get email is I give it to other people and then I send me messages. So I'm not as worried about that. I'm worried about the personal things. Uh, obviously, just being a little bit selective as well around what are the services that you're going to entrust any data with at all. Uh, I certainly had an occasion just the other day. In fact, I, I remember I was going to buy some uh, some filament for a 3D printer. And it's like, all right, I've never had to do this before. Where do I go? And one of the websites just, it's almost like you walk into a physical store sometimes and you're like, oh, this place doesn't feel good. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be putting my credit card details into this form. So you've got to be a little bit selective about that. Uh, the, the payment mechanisms we use as well. You know, uh, we mentioned PayPal before. Things like PayPal have generally got pretty good fraud detection and, reimbursements if things go wrong. Many credit cards are similar. Uh, having, say, a debit card, maybe not such a good idea. You probably don't really want to give your bank account details to a service which can then make direct debits unless you're really, really confident in who it is. So a, a lot of this really is, is sort of applying the, the, the common sense measure. Uh, and, and then you just got to do that under duress without the time to plan for it. That's the trick at the moment. The circumstances of all of this have led to... Uh... You know, cyber criminals trying to take advantage as well. Uh, I got a text message just yesterday saying uh, uh, your Royal Mail package has been, uh, we couldn't deliver it. So click here to 
uh, see what notes to rearrange it. No, I'm expecting some packages at the moment. And, but I looked at the link and thought, okay, that part of me initially went, okay, I am expecting a message or <laughs> a package. But then I thought, no, this isn't right. And I, I didn't, I sort of, I, I investigated the link on a sort of secure uh, uh, browser and it would look like, yeah, the exact copy of Royal Mail, but it, it just had the thing where it didn't have any actual personal details in, it just said, you went to that and it said, click here to you know, basically pay a fee for your redelivery, which isn't a thing here. Uh, you don't pay Royal Mail to, to redeliver your package, but I suppose a lot of people might not know that. Uh, so it's, there's an element here where cyber criminals have been trying to take advantage of this sort of thing. And it's become really tricky for people to you know, stay safer because we're already dealing with extra pressures and have been for a long time. And you've got, then you've got this on top of it as well. So there's a two part response to that. And, and part one is that like all the same things that we've been dealing with in the past in terms of like phishing and social engineering is still a thing. But in many ways, it's worse because, I mean, something like the package example, I've certainly had these before as well, because you and I, like everybody else, is now expecting more packages than what we ever had before because we're not going out and doing as much in-person stuff as we used to. So all of that stuff is, is still a problem. It's just the volume is turned up on it now. And, and then the other part of it is, and this is another thing that's still a problem as well, is that very often legitimate communication from real organizations is indistinguishable from phishing attacks. Uh, in fact, I'm doing a presentation on this tomorrow for a bank and I'm using another bank as an example where, I, and this was a bank that I actually used for a while there. I had an email from them once and it, it said, hey, Troy, we've, uh, we've got a new app, a new iOS app. You know, click here to get the app. And I'm looking at it going, ah, like, when I get an email telling me to click a link and install something, it's always a bit, you know, it's always a bit fishy. So I will hover my mouse over the link and I'll see if it's got the bank's URL, knowing full well that all of us are terrible at actually reading URLs as well. But, you know, we'll see. And it was something completely different. It was like mkt053.somethingsomething.com. I'm like, come on, yeah, you're not even trying here. Uh, and then as, as, a, as circumstances have it, I end up doing a presentation for that bank. I showed them this and they're like, well, actually this is legitimate. And the, the InfoSec people are just going, oh, not the marketing department again. Because <laughs> this is the problem where organizations, legitimate ones, are emulating precisely the same patterns that we see from fishes. So how's your average person meant to figure that out? The ones I see that work really well. So when we get uh, when we get a message from the government via our MyGov platform here in Australia, where, uh, for example, you've made a, a change to your, your tax structure or something like that, they will send you an email and say, you have a message, go to the MyGov website and log on. No URL, no click here, no download anything. It's like literally just leave. You go figure it out yourself. Because if you go to Google and you Google MyGov, you'll almost certainly end up in the right place. But it's, it's interesting how we get organizations like that trying to, uh, I guess, reinforce the positive behaviors. But so many others are just looking exactly like scams anyway. That came up with uh, for me last year, as we as we actually discussed when my uh, bank card was turned up to being used in South America. I got an alert from my bank going, "Oh, is this you? Did you use your card here? Click here to tell us." And I was like, "Is this some sort of double or triple?" <laughs> so I end up yeah, you know, going to the, my bank's website, calling them up, and going, "Is this message legit?" 
And they said, yeah, I was like, okay, okay, now I have to figure out what, ha- no, okay, that's, can you now cancel my card, please? Because I'm not in South America. And it's just these little things where, as you say, uh, there's, you know, I won't name names, there's quite a well-known payment site where the, the, their emails to me, they just, they just scream phishing email to me when I see them, even though they're not, mm. they just come across that way. And it's just so confusing when people are being uh, told to, oh, you must be, stay safe online then your legitimate services just going ah click here well i think part of the problem is that phishing signals are often indistinguishable from uh, positive user experience attributes so for example putting a link here to make it it's easy when you've got a link because you just click on it and you go straight to the right place and it deep links you through to that potentially fraudulent transaction so you can review it straight away that is a much nicer user experience than saying go to your bank and try and find it good luck but of course, that whole premise of trying to draw people down the garden path so that they go and click on something which they wouldn't naturally do, that is the sign of, of a potential phishing attack. But it's also the sign of good usability. <laughs> so here we are in this paradox again. I suppose to uh, wrap up here, uh, what can uh, organizations be doing to help keep their uh, employees safe while online? Because they're working remotely. And that can lead to uh, situations where not only can uh, you know, phishing attacks try and take advantage of you know, their personal details, uh, phishing attacks uh, um, and privacy violations can also lead to consequences on a corporate level as well. Yeah, and, and this is where I think organisations got to be very conscious that the, these little people, these beacons that they've now got all over the place, sitting in their home rooms, home rooms sounds like they're at school, sitting at home in their rooms, uh, yeah, they are now all threats into the organisation. So I guess there's a combination of things. There's always the education piece. We kind of have to do it. We know it's only so effective because humans, of course, are ultimately fallible. It's the it's unfortunately the, the organic matter behind the keyboard, which is often the the vulnerable part of the loop. So they need to be complemented by digital controls. So what sort of digital controls can we give people? You know, things like a VPN are obviously very logical solutions. Like let's take out all of the intermediaries where things can go wrong, uh, and particularly where a VPN will do things like say, look, there are known bad sites. We're not going to let you go to the known bad sites. It's not going to be a free for all positive steps there. Uh, other controls around ingress and egress data and locations. Um, you know, once we know that a site is a phishing site, let's not let people go there. Uh, there's plenty of tooling there to try and reduce that risk. Even looking at, is there unusual behavior? So things like user behavioral analytics are becoming a big thing. Uh, yeah, Bob normally comes into the office or virtually comes in these days logs onto the sales department, pulls down some data and does his spreadsheet. One day, Bob logs in from Beijing and pulls down five gigabytes of marketing data. You know, like <laughs> maybe it's not Bob. So we are getting more intelligent systems as well. I and mean, we need to have that, that balance of, of the education and the, the training with the technology to back it up and, and help us out when things do go wrong. Thanks, Troy. That's some great advice. And hopefully anyone watching this can uh, find out uh, these additional ways to keep themselves secure online, both at a professional and a personal level. Uh, Thanks for joining me on ZDNet Security Update. And for more information on how to keep yourself safe online, uh, subscribe to this video series. And of course, uh, keep reading ZDNet. Thanks for watching.